I'm Marty Moskowain. Welcome to The Connection. Once a parent, always a parent, no matter if your children are 2, 22, or 42. Now, as every parent knows, raising a toddler requires a unique set of 24-7 skills. But parenting doesn't end when your child reaches adulthood. It does require a different set of roles and responsibilities and a new kind of relationship. It's estimated that 65 million Americans have adult children in their 20s and 30s, and many of them live together. Psychologist Lawrence Steinberg has been spending years treating, researching, and writing about adolescents and young adults. He says that it's harder to be a 20 or 30-something today than it was for their parents when they were the same age. Educational and workforce demands have changed. Student debt has made it harder to start a career and family. And the hangover from helicopter parenting has left many young adults overly dependent on their parents for emotional, financial, and physical support. Steinberg writes about the ups and downs of this relationship in his new book, You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. He is Distinguished University Professor and the Laura H. Carnell Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Temple University and joins us here in our Philadelphia studios. And Laura Steinberg, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Great to see you again. Nice to see you again as well. Has there ever been a non-challenging time to be a young adult? Well, I think there have been um, times that have been less challenging than now. Um, There are so many uncertainties about the economy, about the labor force. There's this incredible cost of housing that young people are dealing with. Um, And we see rising rates of anxiety and depression among young people, not just teenagers, but among young adults as well. So I think that that reflects that something is going on um, that's making life more difficult for people in decades that we ordinarily Mm -hmm. didn't think of being that hard. And I don't want to start off by saying, well, when I was a young person, but I'm also thinking about the 60s and the 70s, the the war, the civil rights movement, um, the women's movement, um, assassinations. I mean, that it's... There's, there's never been a time where things have been all hunky-dory, it seems. Right. And I think we would agree that this is an age when people um, are committed to social causes and interested in these bigger issues. We can talk a- about it later, but I think so much of a fuss is being made about the impact of Instagram yeah. on people's mental health. TikTok. But, yeah, but, you know, let's remember there's climate change. There's threats to women's reproductive autonomy. There's mass shootings and violence and the cost of housing and student loan debt. I mean, there are lots of things to be distressed about when you're that age. And I don't think that all of those things were there to the extent that they are now in in the 60s. Um, well, and it, it feel, maybe it's the media. It just feels so omnipresent that it feels as if there's this deluge 24-7 of of uh, lots of bad news. There is. And then there's the, the other recurrent theme um, where the media are telling young people that they're never going to lead a life that's as good as the life their parents led. Um, you know, imagine hearing that, you know, every month for years. Who wouldn't get depressed and who wouldn't be anxious if that was the message you were you were reading or hearing about or seeing every day? You write about the fact, and we were talking about this before going on the air, that um, generally speaking, 
young adults in their 20s and 30s had a different kind of relationship with their parents than I guess we had with our parents, who are, you know, obviously a lot older um, and a lot closer, and that they know more about each other's lives. What's the pros and cons of that? Well, I think we want people to be close to their families, and I think it's good for parents and kids to be close, regardless of their age. Um, I think that nowadays we're seeing people being a little confused and perplexed about what the right boundaries are. Let's remember that the current generation of parents with adult children have been incredibly intensely involved in their kids' lives, much more than my parents were involved in mine when I was growing up. Yeah, me here. Um, You know, from looking for a preschool like it was a matter of life and death, um, you know, going to the kindergarten art shows and ooing and aahing like they were in a Chelsea gallery, um, you know, screaming on the soccer game sidelines and going to back to school nights with with notebooks of their own so they could write down all the things the teacher was saying. And, we, you know, we hear stories about parents not only looking over their kids' college applications but maybe sometimes writing the essays. And so they they have been very, very involved all along. And I think now they're wondering and their adult children are wondering, what is the appropriate level of involvement right. for parents and adult children? In fact, let me quote you. Um, you say, I speak for many professors around the country when I say that parents are far too involved in their children's college education, and that isn't good for their kids' psychological development. Right. Because this is a time when individuals are learning how to function as independent, capable adults. And if their parents are doing everything for them, they're depriving them of opportunities to learn how to be responsible and self-reliant. And so I, I, you asked a moment ago what the pros and cons are of this close relationship. And so I think there's always you know, a fine line that you have to walk. Um, and there is a danger of, of enmeshment um, where the parents are too involved in a way that's interfering with their adult children's need to become more autonomous from them. And that's a theme throughout the book. Sure. And, and the message is that if a parent is taking care of everything that they're saying to their child because you can't. I think there's a danger that that's what it's going to be interpreted as. I I think even if it's not consciously interpreted that way, I think it's it's an it's a message that they may be internalizing in a way that undermines their feelings of of confidence and competence and I I'm sure we'll get into the finances and that aspect yes. of it, but I think this juxtaposition of financial dependence and a lot of young people today are dependent on their parents at an age where they hadn't expected to be, um, with the need for emotional independence, um, it makes for um, a lot of difficulty and challenge in families. You mentioned the word boundaries. I mean, finding, I guess, that, that, that sweet spot when it comes to some of these boundary issues. Right. And, you know, how does a young adult child who has profited from and enjoyed this close parental involvement for all those years, for 20 years, let's say. Um, how, how do you say to your parents, okay, you can, you can back off 
right. now. Um, and and and, ha- and what does that feel like to a parent? Because I think if they do back off, they they may feel guilty. Like, why am I not doing all the things that I used to do? Um, but if if they don't, they they may you know see their children pushing them um, for a, a little more distance. And so it it it's a tough situation. Yeah. And as I point out in the book, times are very different now. And I think that there are a lot of parents with adult kids that just don't know what their relationship should be like. Right? There's no, there's no guidebook out there. Um, there aren't a lot of rules out there, and families are coping with new situations, like having your adult child live at home with you. I mean, th- the list is what very, very long. What are the rules and, and, and regulations when it comes to something like that? Exactly, and um, you know, there isn't a right answer for many of these questions. But what I hope I was able to do in writing the book was at least to suggest to parents, here are some of the things you should be thinking about. Well, one, and it's pretty obvious, is that parenting never ends. You know, once you're a parent, you're going to stay a parent. But but the question is, what kind of parent do you want to be to your 27-year-old child? Right. And let's remember that... um, when you were the parent of a younger child, um, your child was going through developmental transitions. And although your parenting wasn't ending at any of those points in time, it needed to change and it needed to be adapted to what your child's psychological needs were. Um, and I think that this is this is the key to this age period. That is, um, for parents to understand what is my adult child going through um, and how do I need to stay involved but adjust my parenting so that it matches well with my kids' psychological needs? Well, let me play a clip. And we, we pulled a couple of clips for today's show, and this is from the movie Parenthood. Frank is played by Jason Robarts, and here he is in a scene telling his son Gil, who's played by Steve Martin, that he suspected he may have had polio when he was a young child and how agonizing that was for him as a father. For a week, we didn't know. I hated you for that. What? I did. I did. I, I, I hated having to go through that. Caring. Worrying. Pain. It's not for me. And you know, it's not like that all ends when you're 18 or 21 or 41 or 61. It never, never ends. And again, a scene from Parenthood. Now, one could also say the same thing, but with more joy than we're hearing from uh, Jason Robart. Sure. Um, but let me let me take this back just for a moment sure. to um, this issue of the increasing rates of depression and anxiety among Um, young adults, partly due to the pandemic and its disruptive effects on school and work. But the trend was there before COVID. Um, And so close parents are now close up to this, too. And so a lot of them are not only challenged by not knowing what kind of relationship they should be having, they may be especially challenged because they're seeing their young adult maybe depressed or maybe struggling with a substance abuse problem or maybe um, expressing suicidal thoughts. And so I think when when you're close up, you, you get to really profit from the joyful 
things that you see, but I think you are probably going to find yourself in positions where you can, um, you know, not to use the cliched expression, but you can feel your child's pain. And and it's hard. And, um, you know, when we say parenting never ends, I think we need to keep in mind that parenting never ends in a good sense and it never ends in a bad sense. And that's why people say it's the hardest job that there is. And, you know, you don't retire from the job just because your child is no longer 18 years old. We're almost about a break here. And it's easier, I think, to, to help a you know a toddler who's crying versus a 27-year-old who's upset and crying. And, and and I think that the 27-year-old may say, I can handle this. Right. And then as a parent, you feel helpless. That is uh, Lawrence Steinberg, our guest today on The Connection. He's got a brand new book, and it's titled You and Your Adult Child, and it's subtitled How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. And as I mentioned in my introduction, something like 65 million American adults have adult children. These are people in their 20s and 30s. And uh, the relationship changes over time. We're talking about uh, some of the things to keep in mind if you're a parent or an adult child. Stay with us. Much more to talk about after this very short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and our guest is Lawrence Steinberg. He's a Temple University psychologist, and again, we've, he's got a brand new book called You and Your Adult Child. I think, though, for every—I'll I'll speak for every parent here—the um, impulse to rescue one's child doesn't ever end. I mean, there are probably different things that they can be rescued about, but that impulse is is always there because— you know, when they're not happy, we're not happy. Yes, and um, one of the big issues that parents face is knowing when to rescue immediately and how to rescue or how to stand back and allow your child to save themselves from whatever it is. Right? So one of the principles that I suggest parents adopt is if you're – debating about whether to, to speak your mind or bite your tongue, um, you should probably only intervene if it's absolutely necessary to prevent something terribly harmful and irreparable from happening. Um, but unless your kid asks for your opinion, you should probably keep it to yourself. Why? I mean, because they're telling you something, right? They're telling you something. And again, as we were talking about, they are still developing. They are still figuring out who they are. They're still trying to become even more competent and capable as adults. And the more you do, the more advice you give them, the more you tell them as a parent, the more there's a possibility that you'll undermine that very important psychological development. On the other hand, it's very hard as a parent to stand back and watch your child do something that you know is a bad idea, that you know is reckless or foolish, hurt them. or that can hurt them. And so you have to just ask yourself, how necessary is it for me to jump in here? 
Well, let me quote you because you have some things for people to think about when they're worried or or considering giving advice. Is your relationship so fragile that you can't openly disagree about anything consequential? Do the benefits of speaking up outweigh the cost of keeping your mouth shut? And how will walking on eggshells around your child affect your own mental health? You'll feel better if you speak up and your child doesn't follow your advice and if you don't and feel like a misunderstood martyr. I mean, those are those are each important things to think about. Right. And and I and I think that there isn't um, a, a kind of automatic, you know, you should always speak your mind or you should never speak your mind. You have to look at each situation as it arises and figure out what the best thing to do is. And that's hard. I mean, even when your child was little, it was oh, it's always harder to to make a thoughtful decision about how to interact with your child than it is to automatically say yes or automatically say no. It's a lot of work. You write about the the I guess the young adult brain. I mean, the idea that the, the brain actually is still evolving in a sense until someone is in their mid twenties. So this idea of the adolescent brain really extends into young adulthood. What do we need to know about the young adult brain? Well, it's still maturing. Um, we think until the mid twenties, perhaps beyond that. Um, we've only been doing research on development of the brain beyond age 18 for a short period of time. And even studies of the adolescent brain didn't really begin in full force until around the year 2000. So we're learning a lot about this. But I think that, um, and I think parents who've lived through this stage with their child know that kids who are between 20 and 25 still do a lot of foolish and reckless Mm -hmm. things. And one of the reasons we've seen in our research is that they're still developing self-control and they're still developing the ability to anticipate the future consequences of their decisions. Um, It's not a topic I deal with in the book, but in in part of my life uh, in the, the legal world, there are a lot of debates around the country right now about how we should treat offenders who are between 18 and 25 because I think we're realizing now that they're, they're, uh, you know, they're not teenagers anymore, um, but they're not fully mature adults. And some states are starting to change really what the age of majority is for treatment under criminal law. Which raises a whole host of questions about responsibility and, and behavior and all of that. But I, I wonder, too, whether... Um, this sort of delayed adulthood that we're seeing and whether it has to do with paying off student debt or whether it has to do with the pandemic or other financial considerations, whether delaying adulthood is not a bad thing. Maybe it's good to hold off before having children, for instance, or deciding this is what I want for my career and I'm going to stick to it until retirement. I think a lot of it depends on what the individual is doing while they're delaying the adulthood, right? Delay, if what a, delaying adulthood means is hanging around on your parents' couch, you know, watching cat videos on YouTube or playing video games, I, I don't think that that's very good. But if the time can be spent in novel and challenging activities, there's some research suggesting that that may keep the brain plastic or malleable for longer, which will then make it more effective at learning new things. And again, I you know, keep coming back to this, is that this point in the life cycle, that, that is this period kind of after adolescence but not quite in adulthood, is the main time 
for people to learn what is necessary to function as a competent and capable adult. And so as a parent, you want to make sure that those opportunities are there for your child to develop even more competence, even more skill. But I'm thinking that, you know, having a child in, at 20 versus 30 versus maybe 35 that there are good reasons to delay some of these big decisions because one is more mature, more grown up. One's more mature, more grown up, and one is going to live a lot longer, mm-hmm. right? And so, I th- and and I think it's hard for parents to to understand because I think it's it's, I think parents' inclination is to judge their adult child's progress, if you want to use that word, right. toward full adulthood, um, using the timetable that they followed. Right. I, I hear from parents whose kids, let's say, are in their early 30s and aren't settled into a committed romantic relationship. And the parents say to me, you know, is my kid ever going to get married? Um, because I'd like to be a grandparent someday or some version of this. And I say, if you look at the demographics, what you see is that at least for college educated people, um, they don't get married before the age of 30 anymore for the most part. And so the fact that your child is unattached and is 32 or 33 years old is not something to to worry about. And probably your child isn't worried about it, but you are because you're thinking back to where you were at that age and times have changed. And a big theme of this book is how delayed adulthood has affected parents because – um, as you know, because we've talked about it in other um, in other situations, um, I've been very interested in the impact of delayed adulthood on the young person's development. Right. And until um, I was asked to write this book, and I'll tell you how that came to be, um, I had not thought at all about whether delayed adulthood was going to have any impact on parents' development. And and it, it is. And I think that one of the reasons that so many parents want help and want guidance about this time period is that they don't know how to make sense yeah. of the timetable that young people are following. And, and the milestones, such as they are, are either being rewritten or lived out in a different kind of way or don't even exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. So let me just say that the, the this book really was the idea originally of people at AARP, (laughs) the organization that advocates for adults who are 50 and older. Um, They were hearing from a lot of their members. Now, AARP has 137 million members. So they're hearing from a lot of, it's a lot of people. They're hearing from a lot of their members that they don't know what to do, that they are challenged by raising adult children and that they want help and that there aren't resources out there. And through a a series of communications, they got in touch with my former editor, who then called me and said, are you interested in taking this project on? And it was a really interesting learning experience for me. Um, For one reason is that as a scientist, my first uh, inclination is to go to the literature and see what we know about this, and there's no literature yeah. on this. It just has that. not been studied. Um, so um, I, I had to do a lot of kind of deep think, deep deeper thinking than I might have done had I had an idea for a book and just was starting to write it on my own. 
Let me just quickly reintroduce you. That's uh, Lawrence Steinberg. And the book we're talking about is called You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. You reference um, your parents just a little bit in this book. And you have it's a funny little aside there where you're talking to your dad about the, your relationship with your dad. I'm using air quotes here. And your dad says, what relationship? I'm your father, which I think seems very stereotypic and very familiar to me. Yes, but not something that you can imagine a father saying to their child today, right? Impossible. And so I think that's part of the involvement that today's parents of adult children have had. So it hasn't just been, you know, attending the the school conferences and the, you know, the school plays and the athletic activities. It's it's also wanting to have a relationship with your child. And um, I I just think that this is is what today's parents want. Um, It's what they've had all along. And they want it to continue now that their kids are are grown up, yeah. but it's not clear what the rules of the relationship are. You also talk a little bit about your mother, who seemed like she had lifelong problems with depression, and and as as you reference, it's hard for people to change. You know, even if if the world feels like a a miserable place, it's the place you know best. Right, um, and to tie this back to our um, earlier conversation today about brain development. Um, one of the benefits of having a more plastic or malleable brain, as you do during adolescence and young adulthood, is that it's probably easier to fix problems that you're having then. Um, by the time I had that conversation with my mother, when I said, you are depressed and you need to get some help, I, I think she was probably 60-ish or around there. I'm not saying she couldn't have been helped, but I think it's a lot harder to help somebody that's been dealing with chronic depression for 30 years than for somebody whose depression has just come on because of some crisis that they're going through. You also write, and I had to chuckle to myself, uh, by and large, our kids don't think about us nearly as much as we think about them. And I thought, you know, that's that's something we should, we should keep in mind. Yes. Um, and I think um, a lot of parents also forget how busy you are during your 20s and 30s. Because remember, this is when people are settling down into relationships. They're probably establishing an independent home. Um, They may be thinking of having children, or perhaps if they're in their 30s having children, they're trying to jumpstart their careers. And it's an incredible social time in human development. It's when people enjoy socializing the most. And so you as the parent are probably not at the top of the list of people they want to call um, when when they have something good or or bad to talk about let's talk about conflicts you know i mean really deep seated conflicts between um parents and their adult children uh and some of them have to do with i guess old wounds things that have never been really resolved early on you also say it's often about autonomy and i think you referenced that earlier which is on the one hand people are independent on the other hand they're dependent and it's very confusing um how do how do parents deal with these long standing conflicts well i think you know you have to talk about them honestly and openly and you have to try to um, as I say in the book, 
check your own baggage here, right? Because some of what you may be reacting to may be due to your own emotional development or your own neuroses, for lack of a better term. But I think it's it's correct if you can't seem to resolve a conflict or that if the same kind of conflict keeps coming up, to just say to your kid, "Can we, we need to talk about mm-hmm. this and let me understand your point of view and then I'll explain my point of view. And I describe a process in the book that comes from the business world that's called collaborative problem solving. Um, and it's based on the notion that when two people are having a problem, if they both contribute to the solution to it, it's much more likely to work than if one imposes the solution on the other. And one can assume with longstanding problems that both parties have played a part. Sure. I I mean, it is, despite what my father said, it is a relationship. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it flows in both directions. Um, And, uh, you know, of course, these conflicts that we have with other people tend to have kind of vicious cycles to them, right? Like the conflict leads you to do something that probably you shouldn't have done, and that creates more conflict. And then that may lead the other person to do something that he or she shouldn't have done. So I think, you know, let's remember, your adult child is an adult. They're capable of having um, a grown-up conversation with you um, that's not going to devolve into a screaming argument. And I think you just have to say... This is on my mind, and I'd really mm-hmm. like to talk about it because I, you know, I want us to get along better than we've been getting along. Well, let me play another clip, and this is from the 2012 film Silver Linings Playbook. Pat is a bipolar adult who moves back in with his parents. His father, Pat Sr., who is played by Robert De Niro, wants to make up for the time he didn't spend with him in his childhood. Let's give it a listen. I mean, I think it would be wise if we spent father-son time reading about the eagles, talking about them. Well, maybe I didn't spend enough time with you growing up. I spent too much time with your brother. It might have made you feel worse about your behavior, but I, I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to handle it. I mean, that's what all this eagle stuff is about. It's about us spending time now. I wish you'd watch these games with me. So we could talk and we could get into things. And one can hear the pain, you know, in that father's voice and this, the desperation he has to, to, to connect with his child. Right. And I, I, I do, toward the end of the book, talk about the depth of the friendship that you can develop with your adult child. Um, I, I think there are these struggles over autonomy. Um, and over the fact that um, your your child needs room to grow, and as a parent, you need to give them that room to grow, even if it means watching them do things that you wouldn't do. But I think once that challenge is worked through, and I think it does get worked through, um, you now can have a friendship with somebody that probably knows you better than anybody else. Um, and to look forward to that... I think it's very important for parents to remember if they happen to be going through a, a, a rough patch um, with their adult child. And they will. And they will. I mean, 
it's uh, going to happen no matter it, it, it's going the quality to, of the relationship. It, it's going it's going to happen. Um, you know, when I think that AARP was hearing from enough people to say our members need something, that that means that there are a lot of moms and dads out there who find this to be a challenge and they need some help and support in navigating it. Now, it doesn't mean that it's a crisis, but it's it's a challenge. Um, and challenges can be worked through. Sure. And and what kind of a relationship does each party want to have with each other? We have to take a very short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation with Lawrence Steinberg. He's a psychologist at Temple University here in Philadelphia. He has been uh, studying and doing research and treating and talking with um, adolescents and young adults. He's got a new book, You and Your yeah, excuse me, You and Your Adult Child: How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Marty Moscowain, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Well, young adulthood isn't what it used to be. Our guest psychologist, Lawrence Steinberg, says that people in their 20s and 30s face a whole new set of challenges compared to previous generations. And today on The Connection, we are talking about what it takes to parent an adult child. Let me play another clip, uh, just making a segue here. This is from the CBC television comedy series Schitt's Creek. Wealthy parents Johnny and Moira, played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, lose all of their money and are forced to live with their two adult children in adjoining motel rooms. Your mother and I have been talking, and we've come to the realization that we've not been very good parents. Sadly, and most of the time, we have no interest in what's going on with you. We have no idea what's... Because she means no idea. <clears throat> we have lost touch as a family. And if we're going to get through this ordeal together, we have got to get reacquainted. <laughs> and reacquainted they do. I mean, I, I just want to make sure that there's some levity in this hour because um, that's important. And it and it's, exists. It's important, um, and, and I think I should add to that, that um, the most common living arrangement among Americans in their 20s today is living with their parents. Um, and that was never the case during the tw- entire 20th century, even at the height of the Great Depression. Um, and some of it is pandemic fallout, but they were moving back home anyway. And Americans have a very... A particular view of that, we, right? I mean, we the prize ma- our independence, don't yeah, we? And and exactly, and you know, the Matthew McConaughey movie is called Failure to Launch, not Congratulations on Continuing to Live with Your Parents. Um, now, we, I think we have to remind ourselves that there are plenty of cultures in the world where it is normative for people to say to be living in their parents. Italy is a very good example of that. Um, but I still think that it is denigrated in this culture because we do, as you say, value independence. Um, and I think that because it's something that's new, that families don't know what to do. You yeah. know, I get asked questions. Should we charge, should we charge our kid room and board? Um, should, what's the expectation for participating in you know, managing the household? Do we assign them chores? Um, do we still oversee their behavior? Um, 
uh, I'm giving a talk on this at the American Psychological Association, and it occurred to me, you know, and what about the young person managing their sex life now that they're in the bedroom down the hall from their parents? Uh, You know, I don't think their parents want to hear that, and I don't think their kids want them to hear that. Um, But so there, there are new issues that families haven't thought about before. There isn't a right answer. But I think you do need to, if your child is moving back home, you do need to have a conversation about some of these issues. Well, I'm thinking about moving back home into the room where you grew up, oh, you know, with yeah. all the medals or trophies on the wall or, you know, drawings from uh, 11th grade. Yeah. I um, During the pandemic, I was teaching um, remotely, as many professors were forced to do, and I was teaching a small class of graduating seniors and they would many of them were taking the class from home and many of those students who were probably 21 22 years old were in their childhood bedrooms and some of them were sitting there taking a college class with their stuffed animals you know surrounding them and it is a weird juxtaposition let me read an email from uh, Sandra who sent it in this week. She says, I have a great relationship with my kids. My two sons who are age 48 and 57 and respect me and I respect them. We lost their sister to brain cancer over 10 years ago and that has kept us close and taught us to appreciate each other. Um, thank you, Sandra, first of all, for, for writing that and, and to remind us that there there are, even through tragedies such as losing a child to brain cancer, there are ways that we can do it together. Right. And, 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 and you know, in the class that I was talking about a moment ago, I asked the students, how has it been moving back in with your parents? Because most of them had been living um, on campus. And they said, you know, it's much better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, wow. Um, and I've gotten to know them as people in a way that I wasn't able to know them when I was a high school student living with them. And that, to me, is just an incredible benefit of uh, of deepening this connection. Um, and it doesn't have to come from kids moving back home, but I think it can come from respecting each other and appreciating as I said before, the, the the kind of friendship you can have now that you're both grown up. On the other hand, I was reading about estrangement, yeah. um, and there's a new study, I think it's in the Journal of Marriage and Family, that said that 26% of young adults are estranged from their fathers, and 6% are estranged from their mothers. Now, I don't know how how big the the sample was or how reliable those statistics are and i don't know whether that's something new and different but you're having a reaction larry yeah um so when when i decided to take on the project and i looked for a scientific literature on it i didn't find very much out there and i looked to see what books were out there and i was amazed at the number of books on estrangement that were there for sale interesting most of them not written by scientists but written by bitter or anguished parents about their experience. So I I dug a little bit deeper because I had seen that figure um, before, and it it struck me as probably not possible. Um, That it's just too much? It's just too much. And um, what I discovered was that the way in which estrangement is defined is so loose that you can make it into any number you want to make it into. So let me just explain my reading of the statistic that you just cited. 80% of estrangement is estrangement between a child 
and a biological father who was not present during most of the child's life. Right? And so not much of a relationship there. Anyway. Exactly. And also the estrangement is in some senses partly caused by the biological mother's lack of interest in having a relationship or having her child have a relationship with this person whose marriage went south a long, long time before. Now, that doesn't mean that the child and the biological father are not estranged, but I don't think that that's what we think of when we read a headline like 25% of all young adults are estranged from their parents. I mean, I think we think of, of people that became estranged while they were young adults and got estranged over some issue, argument, conflict, and now don't want to talk to them or text with them. That's very rare. I mean, I I would guess that that's probably more like 8%, not 25%. Which is an important corrective, and and I understand and appreciate what you're what you're saying about that. Let me ask you about something else, which is getting a lot of attention, which is this. Um, I will call it so-called crisis, but I think a crisis of young men, whether it has to do with educational attainment or workplace, career, relationship. Even when you look at crime statistics, you often see young men overly represented there. As someone who studied adolescents and and young people what should we make of all this well first i think we should um we should acknowledge that there are a lot of adolescent boys and young men who are having pretty bad problems and if you were to look at the headlines about the crisis in mental health among teenagers today you would just see people writing about girls I mean, that's been the focus of all this media coverage. I don't mean to minimize that at all, but I think that the way that girls manifest their distress makes us feel sad when we see it. The way that eating disorders, eating disorder, depression, crying. You know, I, I think when when males manifest distress, and this is true in adolescence and adulthood. It's it's doing things that cause problems for other people. <laughs> it's it's substance abuse. It it's makes crime, us angry. It's fighting, and it makes us angry. And so, I think we are not paying sufficient attention to the very real mental health crisis that is affecting um, young men in this country, and that's manifested in um, poor school achievement, much higher dropout rates from college, um, more difficulty um, getting their careers um, off the ground. Um, and um, I just don't think that we've been attentive enough to it. Meaning just paying attention, talking to young men, adolescent boys, finding out what, what their life is like? Yeah, and I, th- I think that we, you know, we have set up schools in ways that benefit people who are able to sit still and be quiet, right? And if you and don't notes, sit right? still and be quiet and take notes, you, you get labeled as a disciplinary problem or you have ADHD, um, or you get sent to the principal's office. And so I think that the way that we expect kids to behave from a very young age in school disadvantages boys in ways that may be holding them back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, school to me is the glue that holds kids' life together. And once you're having problems in school, there's a cascading effect. And I think that boys are more likely to get swept up in that cascade than girls are. You worry about them? I mean, kind of the future of of these young men. 
I do. And I worry about the fact that if you walk around college campuses, you know, it's like an endangered species now. I mean, you just... Really? You don't see... You, you see so many more women? You see so many more women. Um, and and I know the data support that, too. So I, I think young men are having a tough time of it, and we're not paying yeah. um, enough attention to it. I'm going to shift gears once again and talk about grandparents. Yeah. And you have a whole chapter on 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 being a grandparent to your adult children's children, um, and you say keep your opinions to yourself yeah. and enjoy that relationship with that grandchild or with those grandchildren. Right, um, and and I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, the the primary one is that parenting advice changes generationally, and so it is very likely that what you, the grandparent, were told when you were a new parent about how to rear your child is not what your child is being told by today's gurus and pediatricians about how to rear their child. I mean, there are some, I won't mention the books, but there are some very popular approaches to parenting today that I look at and I think, no. (laughs) This is just completely in conflict with research on child rearing, which I know a little bit about. Um, but I don't think there's any point in in criticizing your child's parenting because they're just doing what their friends are doing and what their doctor told them to do and what the authors of those books are telling them um, to do. And in fact, there are lots of fine ways to raise children, and probably your grandchild is going to turn out fine. And so why not just look at it as an opportunity to enjoy and I'm a grandfather, mm-hmm. um, and it is a, a lot of fun. Um, and I'm a fact, grandmom, and I would agree. And, yep. and my uh, child and his wife and our grandson are arriving here in Philadelphia in about an hour and a half. And I'm very much looking forward to spending time with my grandson, and, um, and we'll have a blast. And I won't worry about disciplining him you know, or, or or trying to facilitate his development in some educational way. I'm just going to have a good time with him. And do you think these sort of the ideal relationship or responsibility for the grandparent is to make their job easier as parents for these young children? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think that um, you can be supportive. Let's remember that being a new parent is difficult. Um, and you and I know this from having been new parents at one point in our lives. Um, and I think what you want to do as a grandparent is to make life easier for your kids who are just starting on this part of their life and to make them feel competent at it because we all come into new parenting feeling not competent. Mm-hmm. And so what you can do best as the grandparent is is to help make your kids feel better about their job they're doing as as parents, not worse. So maybe hold off on the advice, right? Hold off on the advice and actually and amp up the compliments. I mean, that's the other part of it. I, you know, I think many grandparents stand on the sidelines and they criticize, but they never take their kids aside and say, you're doing a fantastic job. And I think that that's a very important thing for grandparents to do. Let me play one more clip. And this is from the, um, I actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And Michelle Yo, that was in 2022 last year. Michelle Yo and the role of Evelyn airs her many frustrations with her daughter, Joy. You are getting fat. 
And you never call me, even though we have a family plan. And it's free. You only visit when you need something. You got a tattoo, and I don't care if it's supposed to represent our family. You know I hate tattoos. And of all the places I could be, I still want to be here with you. I will always, always want to be here with you. I am crying <laughs> listening to that clip. I mean, partially because Michelle Yeoh is such an incredible actor and those delivery of those lines, but, you know, all the pain and frustration and love and, and joy. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't go away just because your child is an adult. Because, of course, in your mind, you're, you're always thinking of them as your child, um, as this person that was your baby at some point in time. Um, and I just, uh, one of the things that I hope comes from this book mm-hmm. is I want each generation to be more compassionate toward the other. Uh, you know, I wrote it mainly for parents. I think there's a lot that young adults can learn from reading the book, too. Do we have time for a brief? Uh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> but but no. I like where you're going but about I, I will, compassion. I, I will just say that I think young adults who have seen the book say, I think my parents could benefit from this because I don't think they understand me. Mm. I, and I think a lot of today's parents don't understand what it's like to be in your 20s or 30s. But you're saying compa- we need to have more compassion between the generations, between the the parent and the child, the adult child. I think so. Yep. Absolutely. Love, compassion, care, understanding, listening, Res- all the stuff that goes with that. Respect um, and, um, and, and open and honest conversations. Well, Lawrence Steinberg, thank you for joining us today on The Connection. You're welcome. And the book is called You and Your Adult Child, How to Grow Together in Challenging Times. And he is a professor of psychology at Temple University in their Department of Psychology and Neuroscience. Go to WHYY.org and you can check out The Connection. Actually, it's The Connection at WHYY.org. Tell us what you think of the program. You can check out our website, WHYY.org slash The Connection, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can follow us on Instagram. Charlie Kyer, the engineer for today's edition of, of, excuse me, of The Connection and the show produced by uh, Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us.